Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. My goal on this show is simply to help people know God and follow Jesus by teaching the Bible and connecting it to life. And if if you're new, if this is your first time here and you're joining us, one of the things I like to say is I like to describe this as like blue jeans theology, by which I mean like theology connected to everyday life. And so if you're new, thanks for joining me on the Bible and Life podcast. And I release these episodes every single week, usually Monday evening, Tuesday morning. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so that you don't miss a single episode. In addition to the podcast, I have other resources on my website that I uh, use to try to help people learn the Bible, grow in their faith and their walk with God. I've got some free resources. I've got a Read the Bible Right pack that really shows you how to uh, read through the text of Scripture, gives you a reading plan, shows you how to pray through a passage of Scripture. I've also got a seven-step guide to understanding and applying the Bible to your life. I'll put both the links to those down below in the notes so that you can check those out if you're interested in that. I've got some online courses as well if you want some uh, more in-depth study. You can check those out. I've got a real kind of basic introduction to the Bible that will introduce you to the big story of the Bible, kind of the chronology, how to read the Bible will deal with how can the Bible be the Word of God since it's written by people and some of those sorts of things. So that's on my website. It's called Get a Grip on the Bible as well as some other courses as well. So lots of resources here to help you learn the Bible, grow in your faith so that you can know God and follow Jesus. And that's really what I'm all about on the Bible and life. So thanks for joining me again. What we have been doing over the last several episodes is we've been looking at questions that listeners have sent in and just wrestling with uh, some good, important Bible questions. We've talked about the armor of God. We've talked about, was Jesus really forsaken by God when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've, we've answered the question about once saved, always saved, and wrestle with eternal security, eternal insecurity, and the fact that we can actually have assurance of our salvation. In this episode, I want to take up two more listener questions. Um, both of which I think are very, very important in different sorts of ways. One has to do with our basic discipleship to Jesus, and one has to do with a really pressing kind of cultural church issue that uh, seems to constantly kind of be coming up um, over the last few years. So let's jump into these. The first question comes from Luke chapter 6, and in Luke 6, Jesus is giving uh, his Sermon on the Mount, at least it's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, the more well-known version is from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We have kind of a shorter version of Luke chapter 6, and in Luke 6, Jesus says these words. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on one cheek, offer him the other also, and whoever takes away your coat, don't withhold from him your shirt either. Give to him who asks of you, and whoever takes away what's yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you would want them to treat you. And the questioner who wrote in and asked me this question, her name is Ashley, she actually asked me, well, does this mean like I'm supposed to be a doormat or what? Like, does that mean I just let people walk all over me? This text sort of makes me feel that way. It's understandable when you hear this text and you think, man, I, I'm just supposed to be taken advantage of. I'm just supposed to let people walk all over me. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so, but I want to understand it more. That's the gist of the question that Ashley sent in and asked. And so let me just give a little bit of understanding of this text, and then we'll give maybe just some ways maybe that we can live this out a little more fully. When Jesus says this, I think it's really important that we understand when he says, um, 
I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. That is really the general principle. That's the main point that he's getting at. Love your enemies. Do good to those who would want to harm you, who want to take advantage of you. That's the general principle. Everything else that's listed off are like illustrations. And that's important to remember. They're illustrations of what would it look like to live this way. They're not laws. And the reason that's so important is if they are laws, we all know immediately we could live out Jesus' words. We could do exactly what he says from the wrong heart, from the wrong heart set. So that these are examples or illustrations of somebody who's become the kind of person who's so full of love, they'll love all people, even people who aren't necessarily easy to love. Um, when we understand these are examples, it's like, oh, so I'm just supposed to become a person who's literally full of love, as Bob Goff likes to say. We are becoming love. That's who we are as followers of Jesus. We are people who are becoming love. As we become that, we love all kinds of people, even people who aren't nice, even people who are hard to love, even people who want to take advantage. We do that because we genuinely have other people's best interests at heart. So Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And then he gives examples. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So to bless is to say good things about, to speak well of, and to want good things for, to pray for those who mistreat you. We're praying for God to care for them, God to look after them, God to bring good into their life, God to maybe even uh, bring more love and good things in their life, God to bring them to himself because we know that would be the most important thing. So we're praying for them. Um, the next example, whoever hits you on one cheek, offer him to the other also. Um, means if, if someone strikes you, then you, you maintain a kind of a vulnerable stance. That's, I like that uh, language. That's actually from Dallas Willard who says this really has to do with vulnerability. You put yourself out there. You're vulnerable. If someone takes advantage of you or someone uh, wounds you because of your vulnerability, you don't all of a sudden harden yourself up and callous yourself off. You don't go immediately into the defense mode. You're like, okay, fine. I'll just be that way and then automatically go defensive. You remain a posture of vulnerability towards people, even people who have wounded you or who have wronged you or who took advantage of your vulnerability and who hurt you. So whoever hits you on one cheek, you remain vulnerable. You offer from the other as well, and you try to remain vulnerable. That's just that's a posture of love and still wanting what's best for others. Or whoever takes away your coat, don't withhold from him your shirt either. If someone takes away your coat, and in Matthew's version actually sues you to do this, even takes legal action against you, you still have a heart where, what do you need? How can I help you? And how can I serve you? So you go above and beyond uh, giving them your coat, and you, you offer them your shirt as well if they need that, if that would genuinely be helpful to them. And so you're concerned for their ultimate well-being. Um, and then more, in verse 30, just kind of a general statement. Give to everyone who asks you. Whoever takes away what's yours, don't demand it back. And so somebody who doesn't even have a claim on you, somebody you just met, somebody who you barely know, or somebody who you meet on the street, and they ask you for something, and you could actually give it to them, and it would be prudent and wise to do so, and genuinely loving and helpful to do it, well, you give it to them. Um, you give to them, and even if someone takes something that's yours, and it's like, well, they genuinely need that, you, and you, you're concerned for their well-being, you give it to them, you don't demand it back. So Jesus is offering examples of what a genuinely loving heart would look like. So give to people who love you. And so he ends this section with the well-known golden rule in verse 31 of Luke chapter 6. He says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. 
I mean, you would want people to be kind towards you. You would want people to be loving towards you. You would want people to be generous of spirit towards you, even in your moments where you're not the most lovable, right? Even in the moments where maybe you're difficult to love, you would want people to still be kind to you. Do that to other people. You be genuinely loving to people. You see, the general assumption of the world around us at, at large is just the spirit of retaliation. You wrong me, I'm going to wrong you. You harm me, I'm going to harm you. You do something to me, then fine, I'm done with you. The general assumption of our culture is getting even, right? Um, or doing, you know, doing the same to other people. Even if they harm us, we are going to harm them. And that could be passive aggressive behavior. That could be active aggressive behavior. But generally speaking, in our society, we assume that getting even is how you deal with relationships and how you deal with difficult people. But not Jesus. Jesus reverses that and says, actually, the way you deal with people, particularly people of injured you or people who take advantage of you is you actively love them. It's not even just that, okay, I'm not going to get even. I won't get even. Jesus goes beyond that and says, let's be actively kind. Let's have a generous spirit. Let's do more than ask. Let's bless those who curse us. Let's give to those who take advantage of us. Let's be actively, genuinely kind. The core, catch this, the core of a disciple is being formed into generous love. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. God is love. Jesus wants to form his followers into people who are full of generous love, in which we genuinely want and we can actively discern what's best for others, and so we give that to them. We do that for them because we are becoming love. And we do that for people even when they don't deserve it, even when life is hard uh, for, for them, and even when they make life hard on us. We, it's, it, we are genuinely kind to them, and we can discern what's best in a given situation. So this is not about getting stepped on. This is not about being meek and mild and just, okay, okay, and we just cower, we let people take advantage of us. No, this is strong. This is love with a backbone. This is saying, you know what? I'm going to do what's best for someone, even if they take advantage of me, even if they wrong me. And, and so it's not letting people walk all over us. It's choosing to actively love people who have done nothing to deserve it, maybe who, who have even done the opposite of deserving it. We're going to be actively kind because that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus did for us. In fact, Jesus himself modeled this by hanging on the cross, right? And as he's hanging on the cross, what does he pray for those very people who have put him to death? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And we who are following Jesus, we walk the same path. We embody the same approach to life. We recognize that we want to take evil and malice and injury and wronging out of circulation. We want to set that aside and we want to fill this world with genuine, uh, full-hearted, active love like Jesus was. And we follow Jesus' way, we imitate his pattern, and we love all people. We love all people, even those who wrong us. We do it in active ways. Now, are there times where there's exceptions to these examples? Yeah, these are examples. They're not laws. And so when it's appropriate, we do these kinds of things. But the bigger question is not to even try to do these exact things. The bigger question is, am I becoming this kind of person? Am I becoming the kind of person who just regularly and routinely acts with love, who 
is kind in the tone of our voice, who's kind in our body language, who's kind in the way we look at people, who's kind in the way we think about people, and who's kind in our actions towards other people, even people who maybe it's not always easy to be kind to. Are we genuinely loving from the inside out? That's Jesus' goal. And so as you read the rest of this text, Jesus then, after he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, he says, well, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive back, well, what credit is to you? Even sinners do that. In other words, people who who have no conscience of God, who are outside of God's people, they all do this kind of stuff, right? But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because God is like this. So that's Jesus' call. That's his heart for us is to be people like this, people who are becoming love just like just like he himself was loved. All right, next question is from a listener by the name of Haley. And she asked this question. She said, why do some of the New Testament say women can be pastors, while other parts of the New Testament say they can't? And this is really a kind of a hot-button issue in Bible teaching churches and you know evangelical churches. Can women be pastors or not? I really like the way Haley worded this question because it's rooted in the teaching of the New Testament. So why does the New Testament say some women can be pastors while other parts say they can't? And so her, te- her question is text-based. It's looking at what the text actively says. And, and so let me just try to wrestle. Let's give you at least a few, few thoughts on this. First of all, um, the first half of the question, why does some say, some passages in the New Testament say women can be pastors? And I don't know of a single text anywhere in the New Testament that explicitly says that, that says women can be pastors, all right? So first half of the question, I'm not so sure I I know which text uh, you're thinking of, Haley, but I, I don't know of any passages that explicitly say they can be pastors. Now, let's just be clear what the word pastor means in the New Testament. Uh, The word pastor and the word elder and the word overseer all refer to the same function in the New Testament. So a pastor, an elder, an overseer, they're all the same office, if you will, in the New Testament teaching. So a, a pastor is an elder in the New Testament. The basic meaning of the word pastor is shepherd, and so um, that's what the word pastor means, okay? Um, and, and so that's important as we look at some of these other things that we're going to talk about and answer this question, but I don't know of any specific text that says women can be pastors, women can be elders or overseers in the New Testament. I don't know of any specific texts that say, therefore, they can carry out the functions of a pastor or an elder in the New Testament, all right? Um, But having said that, there are plenty of texts in the New Testament that speak of the equality of women to men. Passages, for example, like Galatians chapter 3, 28, at the end of a rather long, lengthy argument about who can be the children of Abraham and thus inherit the blessing of Abraham. And that word inherit is important in Galatians 3. But at the end of that, in Galatians 3, 28, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Well, why Jew and Greek, slave, free, male, and female? Well, the idea of inheritance is key in Galatians chapter 3, and in under the Old Testament law, 
only freeborn Jewish males could inherit. There were a few exceptions to that, but by and large, freeborn Jewish males were the ones that were able to inherit. And so here in this long text about who can inherit the promise to Abraham, guess what? Those old categories no longer apply. Those old distinctions no longer apply. Anybody and everybody can inherit the blessing to Abraham, come into Abraham's family, be part of God's people, be put into a right relationship with God, and inherit the promise of Abraham. In other words, we're one in Christ, and that's the point of that argument there in Galatians chapter 3. So that that um, speaks of the equality uh, of women with men in Abraham's family, becoming in, coming a part of the family and into the family, right? And who can inherit that blessing to Abraham? And there's plenty of texts like that in the New Testament when you speak about the equality of women. Um, there's plenty of passages in the New Testament that raise the dignity of women to a very high status beyond the cultural norms of their day. Um, uh, even to household codes, codes that are well known where, you know, husband's the head of the wife, is Christ is the head of the church, women submit uh, to your husbands as to the Lord. Those household codes... Contrary to the way our ears hear them, those household codes actually were putting injunctions on the husband and on the men that weren't common in the culture and doing so in such a way that they elevated the status of women and they required things of the men to treat the women with dignity that was atypical in their culture, right? Husbands were rarely ever called to do anything in household Codes. They were kind of like free to do whatever they wanted in the household codes in ancient uh, Greek and Roman writings, but not in the New Testament. In fact, the husband, the man, gets spoken to repeatedly uh, with, he's the husband, he's the father, he's the slave, it's the same guy, slave master, and he gets spoken to over and over again. Why? Because what Paul or Peter are doing in those codes is they're basically saying, look, I know what culture says, but men, you've got to step up and you've got a part to play in God's kingdom and you have different standards. And so those household codes actually require things of men that speak of the dignity of women. And so to lay down your life for your wife, speaking to the men, that was kind of unheard of in the ancient world. That's modeled after the generous love of Jesus. And so that, that in itself speaks of the d dignity of wives and even the fact that the wives are um, being spoken to in such clear language and being spoken of as worthy uh, of that kind of self-sacrificial love, that raises the dignity of wives. Or in First uh, Peter chapter 3, and when it speaks of the women in the household code as being a fellow heir of the grace of life. That raises the dignity of women in a way that culturally in their day just wasn't done. And so those codes, our ears don't hear them the way a first century person would have heard them, but it, it raised the dignity of women. Or uh, there's plenty of passages in the New Testament that demonstrate the influential role of women in Jesus' ministry and in the life of the early church. For example, let me just read you a few of these. Uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Luke 8, 1 through 3 says this. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and enmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Huzza of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. These are women of high influence who provided for them out of their means. In other words, these women 
provided for the ministry of Jesus out of their own means because they're they're wealthy women, they have some means, and they're giving to support the work, and thus they get mentioned in this text as participating in Jesus' ministry. Or another text in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10, there's this well-known story where uh, Jesus is over at the house of Mary and Martha, and he's teaching... And Martha gets upset at Mary, and we usually assume the primary reason she's upset is because she's doing all the preparations for the meal and things like that. And I think that's part of it, but there's another reason, too, that we miss, but culturally stands out and jumps off the page. In fact, Kenneth Bailey, who spent his whole uh, ministry context in the the Middle East, working in that. He even grew up in the Middle East as a missionary kid, right? So he had massive cultural understanding of their context. They would immediately respond to the story differently than we Americans would because they would hear this story in their culture. So let me read you a little bit of this story, um, what happens, right? Martha was distracted and with much serving, and she went into him and said to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her to help me. So part of it is she's upset with the service, right? But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And here's one of the things that jumps off the page in a Middle Eastern context, in a cultural context, much like the original context, that we don't hear. What jumps off the page is, Martha is in the back room preparing the meal, and where is Mary? She's out in the men's section of the house listening to Jesus teach, and Jesus defends her. Jesus defends her um, and doesn't make her go back out of the the male section of the house uh, back to where Martha is. And so what all was upsetting Martha, I don't know, but what stands out is that that Jesus welcomes Mary to come in and listen to him teach with the rest of the men. She's violating social protocol. She's going against the norms of culture uh, in order to listen to Jesus teach. That's elevating the dignity of women in their culture. And there are many passages like this throughout the New Testament. For example, who were the first witnesses of the resurrection? It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't men. It was women. Uh, that they were dignified being the first witnesses to the resurrection, even though in their culture, uh, their testimony would have been discounted. It didn't matter. They mattered so much that they were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Or uh, think of Paul in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and who, who, who welcomes him into her house, and who welcomes him to, uh, begins really supporting his ministry and lets his whole team stay at her house. It's Lydia. It's a wealthy woman there in Philippi. Um, Or you look at Romans chapter 16, and all these names are listed off, but there's some influential women that are listed off there. For example, Phoebe, who's described as a servant in the church at uh, Sincrea, a harbor town of the city of Corinth. And she is an influential person. She's described as a servant of the church. She is um, perhaps involved in delivering, you know, news or the letter to them, right? Like, she, this woman was in some way a, a major influential person in the church at Sincrea. Or you have Priscilla and Aquila mentioned in Romans 16, 3 and 5, and we know they were involved in Paul's ministry in Corinth, and they were involved in teaching Apollos. And so uh, their influential role there 
Um, what's interesting here is Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila in Romans uh, 16, as if she in some ways has higher status or more influence. We're not really sure why, but major player. And then you have in Romans 16, 7, Junia, who is described with her husband as outstanding among the apostles. And we don't know quite what that means and in what way that was. If, uh, in fact, the ESV translated as well-known among the apostles. In whatever way, these were influential people who were described as um, well-known and outstanding among the apostles, involved in ministry in some way, helping plant ch- uh, churches, right? Same with Priscilla and Aquila. They're described as Paul's co-workers. They're involved in ministry. So we know that there, that there are influential women in the early church and in the church that played a significant role in, in ministry. In fact, a, histor- a historian by the name of Rodney Clark, who, who is uh, an unbeliever, and yet, he just describes himself as incapable of belief. And yet, he writes very positive words about early Christian church. He, he says this about women. He says, women uh, were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they otherwise would have led. That it raised their dignity. It gave them care and status. It called their husbands to love them in a way that was never done before. It treated them with a sense of honor. So uh, Christianity elevated the status of women right from the get-go in a way that was never done. Now, with all of that context, let me come back to where I began. And yet, uh, I don't know of any specific passage that that says pastors, elders, overseers, um, that women can be that. In fact, elders are routinely spoken of as male in the passages about elders. They're, they're supposed to be the husband of one wife because they're male. And so they're routinely spoken of as male in the New Testament. And then you have this kind of the real tricky passage that, that seems to kind of be the line in the sand passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that says this, where Paul writes, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. What does that mean? And, and how does that fit in? And so, personally, the way I read the New Testament is women were elevated to this high status. They were able to be people of influence, and they, they worked with Paul in ministry and all that. Uh, and yet, the office of pastor or overseer or elder seems to have been routinely reserved for males. And so that's sort of where I draw the line based on 1 Timothy 2.12 and the passages about elders in the New Testament that uh, women have incredible freedom, incredible dignity, incredible influence, uh, but the office of pastor, elder, seems to be reserved for males in the New Testament. That's how I understand the text. Two great questions. I appreciate those questions and got a few more I want to deal with. Next week, I'm going to actually do something slightly different, but two great questions I appreciate. And if on this last one, you disagree with me, you have a different take on that, or if that's troublesome to you, just remember the first question, uh, that we are to treat each other with the same sort of generous love that Jesus treated us with. And so may love be the mark of everything we do in the family of God. Hey, thanks for tuning in once again to The Bible and Life. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you who listen, who share the show, who uh, who like, who subscribe, who share. Do all that stuff with, with The Bible and Life. So thank you so much. Remember that this is a listener-supported show. And so I'm grateful to, to all of you who support The Bible and Life, either through becoming a patron on my Patreon page. I'll have the link to that down below. And 
all you who are patrons and get bonus podcasts and a few other resources. Man, thanks for your generous support. Or you can donate to the Bible and Life through the donate button on my website up in the upper right-hand corner. There's a little button that says donate, and that goes through World Family Mission. And so uh, if you want to donate that way and support the show, man, I would just deeply appreciate that. All of you who are generously giving, you're making it possible for me to continue to create these online Bible teaching resources. In fact, uh, I'm working hard on the listener's commentary. I'm super stoked about that project, and I'll, Lord willing, be releasing the listener's commentary, at least the first several episodes of that uh, come the first of the year early on in 2020. So be looking for the listener's commentary where I'm going to provide an entire commentary on the New Testament in audio fashion. All right, thanks again for tuning in to the Bible and Life podcast. May God bless you and keep you, and we'll talk again soon.